It's good to see everybody this morning. I'll start by asking you some questions. How many of you have ever heard of Kevin Mayer? Oh. How about these next two names are Czech. They put letters together that don't go together. How about Roman Sabrail? Anybody? Thomas Vorak? Okay, how about Ashton Eaton? What an uneducated group. (laughs) These men are the four all-time record holders of the decathlon. We're batting O for however many in the first two services. Some won gold in the Olympics, others won in the world championships, but these four had the highest scores. I got a list off the internet listing the top 25 men, the tw- top 25 decathletes in history. A couple of names look familiar, like Ashton Eaton and, and Dan O'Brien. Other names like Bob Mathias and Jim Thorpe didn't even make the list. They will soon be forgotten, uh, like most of you have forgotten, assuming you ever knew it, Mayor Sabriel and Vorak. And the only reason... I knew <laughs> Eden is because he's an American and fairly recent. Decathlon is an exhausting contest of 10 events over two days to determine the best all-around track and field athlete in the world. These events in order, uh, they, in the order they take place are the 100-meter dash, the long jump, the shot put, the high jump, the 400-meter run, the 110-meter high hurdles. I'm getting tired reading them. Discus throw, pole vault, javelin throw, and the 1,500-meter run, which is about a mile. Decathletes actually train for years. When we look at the discipline involved as spectators, we may observe admiringly, maybe not. Um, Others observe curiously asking, why did they do it, especially if they're soon forgotten? These are relatively recent guys. I remember years ago in a military school, we had to take what was called the PFT, the physical fitness test. We had to do it twice a year, so when you're four years there, you did it eight times. It was a grueling test of only five events, but you had to do them one right after the other. Not like those wimpy decathletes who spread it over two days. Pull-ups, broad jumps, push-ups, sit-ups, and a 600-meter run. After the test, you were completely exhausted. They had trash cans set up at the end of the run, literally, in case you needed to throw up. Many did. But here's something to be clear. We had to take the PFT. It wasn't something we chose to do. By the way, you might be interested to know that our own Jesse Chastain, who went to the same military school at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, if if you get a max score, which I think, as I recall, is 500, if if you max the test, you get your name written on a wall in Colorado Springs. He has his name written on the wall seven times. How many of you knew that? Huh. So we look at these decathletes and can't help but think they're a little bit crazy. Well, I mean, why do they do it? To win the gold, to be known as the best athlete in the world, and yet you can't even remember their names. 
As you may know, the Christian life has been compared by the authors of Scripture to various athletic contests, Olympic events, like a boxing match, a wrestling match, and, and also a, a race. If you look at the passages, you'll see that we as believers need to have the same attitude of Olympic athletes to strive to do our best in these Christian athletic contests. For example, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that we are to run the race of the Christian life with rugged determination, run in such a way that you may win. We read that the prize is heaven, and you say, no, no, wait, wait, wait just a minute. I thought heaven was for those who believe the gospel. It is, but having believed, we run. That's the fine print of becoming a Christian. We run proving the reality of our faith. And I want you to understand that it is grueling. It's extremely difficult. If anybody, if someone told you that the Christian life was easy, they were lying. So how do we do it? How do we run? How do we... How do we do, especially when the race is so hard, many are, to be clear, many are not cheering us on, they are opposing us. We've been studying the book of Hebrews, we know well by now that the book was written to those who were in this race, but they found it grueling and they were considering quitting. They were thinking of returning to, to Judaism because of the severe persecution they face. So the author warns them in several uh, places of the severe consequences of doing so, but he also seeks to, to encourage them. In chapter 11, he recorded the great hall of faith, which finished just last day. It took us three months. Three months I was encouraging you. In, in the chapter, he lists dozens of people from the Old Testament who face similar opposition, finishing last week. Even death. The first one, Abel. The last one's death. Are you encouraged? He lists them as examples to follow their faithfulness. So maybe this morning you're struggling. Maybe you are in the race. You're a Christian, but you are finding it extremely difficult. Maybe someone did lie to you. Your arms are heavy, your feet are blistered and bleeding, your knees ache, you're gasping for air, and you're wondering whether it's worth it. My desire, again, is to encourage you to persevere by looking at the greatest example of all. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, look at it with me. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, well, he suffered. How well he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What are you facing? How, how challenging has it been? I know that it's been difficult. I do not want to minimize it. I, want, I do, however, want you to understand that Jesus has faced everything that we faced to an even greater degree. So fix your eyes on him. The author makes this sweeping change from great examples of faithful people of the past to, to whom we glance to the perfect example, the best example, the one upon whom we fix our eyes and we run. As grueling as it is. The outline goes like this. We're going to see the race to one and then the way that we actually run that race. We're going to spend most of our time, just to let you know, most of our time in verse one. 
The, the, the first thing that we note is that we are in a race and that there are certain preparations needed to run the Christian life well, even successfully. Now, as I compare, as the author compares the Christian life to a race, I want to be clear that this is not a game. He's using this analogy because it fits well. But we are in the race of our lives. It is preparing us for eternity. It's not a game, all right? Maybe you stayed up last night and watched a three-point contest, all right? Anybody know who won? Some guy named Harris. But I bet you can't even tell me who won four years ago. Oh, it was Stephon Curry. I guess I can. This is deadly serious, not a game. Now, now, part of this preparation is following the examples of successful runners. Notice the author starts with the word therefore, referring us back to the previous chapter, Hall of Faith. There we saw him speak of such great people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Moses and, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, blah, blah, blah. The list go, goes on and on. Many barely named, some even unnamed, some who suffered rather greatly to the point of death. Did you leave encouraged last week? To the point of death, but not like Jesus. And unlike the list of names that I read a few moments ago in the introduction, these are names you probably remember. They are Christian household names. You see, when you run this race, it is a race of enduring value. In fact, I would suggest of eternal value. In fact, I'll throw this in, no extra charge. Consider this. Religions come and go, but you do understand that there will never be a time in human history when books will be written about a dead religion long forgotten called Christianity. That will never happen. It will endure. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the very gates of hell will not overcome it. I know some of the greatest opposition in our country is in our country today. And they are saying things like, do you still believe that fairy tale? Many are abandoning it. Well, do you still hold on to that? That's the question. Do you still hold on? These people were all heroes of the faith, people whose lives we study in Old Testament books. Why? Well, the author is encouraging us to persevere. And in chapter 11, he, he lays the groundwork for chapter 12. That was all introduction, three months of introduction. By, by saying, look, these, all these former runners, they made it, you can make it too. He wants to encourage us by their examples of successful races. Now, I imagine if you wanted to be a great decathlete, why ever in the world you would want to do that, but if you wanted to, let's say you wanted to win the gold and become the greatest uh, track and field athlete in the world, and you knew that Ashton Eaton, even though you never heard of him, Ashton Eaton had written a book about it, you, I imagine that you would read it, would you not? I remember very vividly the first time that I ever played tennis. Tennis was my sport. I loved it. The very first day, I thought it was the greatest game I had ever played. And I played with a friend whose father was a tennis player. As we got home, I was going on and on about how great the game was. And my friend's um, dad, uh, 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 Mr. Douglas, I'll never forget his name, gave me some advice. He said, before you ever pick up the racket again, go to the library and that's where you go to get books. Go to the library and, and check out some books on tennis and read them before you ever develop any bad habits. I did it. I'll never forget Kenny Rosewall. That, that's the, that was one of the books that I checked out. It was great advice, but it is amazing to me the number of people who have entered the Christian race and never read the instruction manual. 
And they come to my office day after day talking about how they're struggling in the Christian life. And I ask them, are you reading the instruction manual? They ever read how others have done it. The Bible is here to encourage us to show us how to run successfully. You want to do well? You want to win the gold? Then read the manual. Because there's this great cloud of witnesses that encircle the believers. The, the writer is thinking of the Greek games, the, the origin of our Olympics, in which spectators in tiers upon tiers of seats surrounded the competing athletes. Now, contrary to what you perhaps have heard and maybe even sung, these... <clears throat> Witnesses are not spectators in, this, in the sense that they are in heaven watching us run our races. <laughs> Moses is not watching us this morning. He, I figure he's got more important things to do. We are not running to please them. Rather, these witnesses are those who have successfully run and as, as such have a strong testimony as to the value of faith, the effect of faith. They do not look to us. We look to them. We, we, we're being told it can be done. Look at those who have done it. They are witnesses to us since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. The word is martyrios. It's the word from which we get our word martyr. And the word is beginning to transition to that meaning in the New Testament. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of martyrs. meant to encourage us. Look to them and be encouraged. So if you're having trouble in your Christian life, in your race, then do a character study of, of the life of those mentioned in chapter 11. That's what we did for, for several months. That's what they're there for. And, and may I add, you do not have to confine your character studies to just these people. Church history is full of the lives of successful Christian runners. Study the lives of faithful, spiritual people like, and I'll put a list on, on, on the board or on the screen, St. Augustine, Martin Luther, his precious wife, my sweet Katie, Catherine Von Bora, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, David Livingston, William Carey, Susanna Wesley, thank God for Susanna Wesley, Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, Corey Ten Boom, Elizabeth L.A., Johnny Erickson, Todd. as far as I know, she's the only one who's still alive on this list. And, and, and people, by the way, do not have to be dead to be an encouragement to you. Keep your lives in contact with spiritual mentor, mentors, people whose faith you can emulate. The Apostle Paul, after all, said, follow me as I follow Christ. We can do the same thing today with people who are further along in the race than us. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. That also means that you are likely further along in the race than someone else. And you may be able to, to help them by your Christian faith. There's an old song. Some of you will have heard it because you've heard of Steve Green. There's an old song. Words were absolutely fantastic. May all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footsteps that we leave inspire them to believe and the life we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Have you ever thought that there are people who are looking at you? There are. And, and we can be an encouragement. There are people in the faith, there are people in this room whose faith you can encourage. And while I'm on that topic, not even in my notes, something is happening in our culture whereby once we get a little bit older, we think we've done our time and we begin to check out. That's the last thing you should do. 
Let me talk to the older people in this room. And by older, I'm going to say 60s and older. And you're going, 60s, you're calling me old? Listen, I'm in my 50s, so I can call you old. (laughs) 60s and older, something happens, and you begin checking out. And you go to that class. They're up there right now. They, it's, connection, it's a Sunday school class, Connection Group 4. You know what they call it? They affectionately call it the last class. They do. They think it's funny. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm glad that they're finding encouragement up there. But listen to me. When you get older, you have more and more of what we need. Don't check out. You, you have what this body um, needs. That's the end of my little aside. So in your preparation to run, we need to follow the example of successful runners. And secondly, we need to get rid of a couple of things as we do. Now, in my opinion, the author has two distinct things in mind. First, he says to throw off every encumbrance, that is everything that hinders us. By this, he means to get rid of any encumbrance or superfluous weight to strip as naked as possible. This is referring to the contestants of the Christian, in the Greek games who before running got rid of everything. They actually ran naked. I know that sounds gross, but they did. And they rid themselves of all excess weight. They didn't go, in other words, they didn't go into the race carrying water bottles and leg weights. They wanted to be as light as possible. Go to Dick's Sporting Good today and go buy a, a, a pair of running shoes and undoubtedly one of the chief characteristics will be how light they are. They'll even float in water. You can even, if you want to, you can buy those like little gloves for your feet. Put your little toes in. I don't, that's crazy. But they're light. Do you, does anybody wear those? It looks like that hurts. The Christian runner, too, must rid himself of anything that might handicap him in the race. I do not think the author has in mind sin. He addresses that in the next phrase. Rather, I think he has amoral, that is, not sinful things in mind. In and of themselves, these things may be harmless and innocent. In fact, they may not affect uh, someone else. You see, here's the point. Um, There's nothing wrong with uh, water bottles and, and, and leg weights. In fact, they serve a purpose. But they would likely hinder you in a race. What he's talking about is anything that would divert our attention, distract our uh, attention, drain our energy, or dampen our enthusiasm. The, The question is not, is the object or the activity sin, but rather, listen very carefully, does it spur you on, does it speed you on, or does it hold you back? As one commentator I had said, is it a wing or is it a weight? Does it help or does it hinder? Let me give you some examples of things that were, if, I'm, if we are not careful, can become hindrances, okay? And invariably, I get in trouble when I mention this first one, but hey, I'm the pastor, I get in trouble all the time. Even though this writer is, taught, is using sports to illustrate his point, sports themselves, and by the way, any other entertainment activity can be a hindrance, if sports to you this morning are more important, if you think about the warriors, more than you think about Jesus, the warriors need to go. If you spend more time dribbling than you do in the word, the dribbling needs to go. Whether it's basketball, TV, or bingo. If, if you are more committed to these than you are the race, then they need to go. What about your education? What about your job, your career? Are they a hurt or are they a help? What about certain relationships? Do they serve to support or do they deter you from your faith? 
By the way, I'm not suggesting that you get rid of your spouse. But Jesus should be more important than your spouse. What about your possessions, your toys? You do understand that the man who dies with the most toys win, uh, does not necessarily win. Do they come between you and God? How important are, 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 are those things that you value? The second thing we are told to get rid of is the sin which so easily entangles. Here the author has something else in mind. The dress of the day was long, flowing, loose-fitting robes. While appropriate for dinner, you would not wear them to a race, or in a race, I should say. They, they could easily become entangled in your legs and feet and impede your progress. So today, you, you, you notice the first thing the athletes, athletes do when they're getting ready to run the race is they got those cute little shorts, but they take off the warm-up suits. The application for us is obvious. There is sin that, that surrounds every believer every day in the race. Say that again. There is sin every day um, around every believer in our races. I think the old translations have it. They call it besetting sin, which speaks of any sin that you have a propensity, a, a particular vulnerability toward if you are, listen very carefully, if you are running with any sin this morning and you think it doesn't matter, it's only a little sin, throw it off. No matter how small you think it is, it is preventing you from running well. Get rid of it. But, but nobody knows. You cannot keep him sitting. It prevents you from running. That's the preparation needed to run. We Seeing we need to follow the example of successful runners, we need to rid ourselves of anything that would hinder our progress, be it moral or amoral. We now turn our attention to the perseverance needed to run this particular race. Second part of verse one, we need to run with endurance. Could be perseverance, the race that is set before us or marked out for us. By the way, the words let us run is the main verb in verses one and two. Verses one and two is one sentence, but it's the main verb. Everything else is a participle. Laying aside those things that encumber us. Laying aside sin. Even in verse 2 when he says fixing our eyes. Participle. Here's the command. Run. Let us run the race. And notice he includes himself. Let us run. I'm including myself today. Let's run together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to run. You need to run. He doesn't say walk. He didn't say jog. He says run. The word is agon, from which we get our word agony. It speaks of a great effort, every effort, I should say, to attain an end. He's telling us to push ourselves to the limit with every ounce of energy that we can muster. Uh, it speaks of crossing the finish line, listen, and then collapsing. What's the finish line? Heaven. You run with everything that you have. You can rest when you get there. You leave nothing. You leave nothing in reserve. Problem today is that we have a lot of Christians in the race who are not running. Some of you are merely jogging. Others are walking. Others of you are reclining on the track. You might look good. You may have the nice warm-up suits, the nice Christian uniforms, the nice shoes. And while going through the warm-ups, you may look impressive. You, you may have all of the tools. You may know the vocabulary. You talk a good race. You can talk theology with the best of them. But upon close observation, we find that you are not running at all. 
We've all known people like that. Again, you may be like that, carrying a big leather-bound study Bible every week to church. And then when you get home, you put it on the shelf where it will be next Sunday morning on the way out the door to church. Some say, as we talk about this running, I need more training. I've heard that. I need more training to run. I agree that we need to be trained. The word is discipled. But we should know that the Christian life is a lifelong process of continual, simultaneous training and running. The consummate athlete never stops training, but he or she does run. Others say, well, I'll start running. I'll get more involved when when things slow down just a bit. How many times I've heard this? When work is not so demanding, when I get out of school, when the kids are not quite so little, when, when, when? And perhaps we should ask the question, are these things, are the things that hinder, that must be thrown off? To be clear, I'm not saying throw off your children. But are they more important than your relationship with Christ? Do you even do things in the name of focusing on the family that puts Jesus to the rear seat? Your kids notice. He tells us how to run with endurance. It means to run with perseverance, patience, without doubt or despair. To run with perseverance means to continue even when everything in you wants to slow down or give up. Everything in you wants to slow down and give up. Now, this, we are talking about a marathon. I've never run one, but I understand that there's something called the wall about the 18-mile mark. I look back there and see Barry Hubert. He likes to run marathons. I don't know why. Those who know about this wall say what happens is when you begin to run, you feel good, then you begin to feel numb, the endless pounding of the pavement beneath, beneath your feet, and then at the wall... Everything in your body is screaming to quit. Every step is painful, and it is only strong determination that keeps you going. You ever felt like that? The Christian life was too painful? You just can't take another step? You ever feel like quitting? That's what these readers were doing. And he's telling us, don't do it. Don't listen. This is not a sprint. This is a lifelong marathon. I'd love to tell you it's going to get easier. I'll tell you how it can get easier if you check out. For these readers, their wall was persecution. They were thinking of throwing in the towel. What is your wall? What keeps you from wanting to go on this morning? Whatever it is, run your race with perseverance. I am encouraging with everything in me, do not stop. Last we see, we run with endurance the race that is set out or marked out for us. The idea here is, don't miss this, it is exposed to public view. This goes back to the fact that we are all in the race together, and some of us are further along in the race. The, the, the race that we are running can be seen by others, by your spouse, by your children, by your neighbors, by your coworkers, by the people sitting in this room. Are you an encouragement to them? Notice each person has his own race to run. And each race may look a bit different. I know we're all going in the same direction. In fact, there's a sense in which we're all on the same track. But, 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 but we are all different people with different gifting. I've suggested that we look at others to be encouraged. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be discouraged. I can read the, of the life of Jonathan Edwards, one of my very favorites, who went to Harvard Divinity School when he was 14, which meant 
at 14, he had to be able to translate the first 10 chapters of John from Greek into Latin. Are you kidding me? That is not encouraging to me. By his 20th birthday, he had written 70 resolutions by which he would uh, govern his life, by which he would live his life. I've read the 70 resolutions. I couldn't even write them, let alone live them. And yet I am not called to be Jonathan Edwards. I am called to run the race marked out for me. My race and your race may look different. God has gifted each of us differently. And we should not compare ourselves with ourselves. We should be faithful in the responsibilities he's given us. But listen, I want you to run. I wrote this on Friday. Last night, I was sitting in the living room with my wife, lamenting the fact that those old reformers used to preach four and five times a a week. I said, how did they do it? And then I came in and read my sermon this morning, and I said, way to go, Scott. I want to be like John Calvin. I can't be like, I'm not John Calvin. Another thing, as long as we're talking about others in the race, the analogy breaks down a bit. We must realize, unlike the Olympics, we are not competing against others. Do you understand that? This church is not competing against other churches in this town. Do you understand? I have to preach that truth to myself all the time. Do you understand that? You are not competing with the person sitting next to you. You are supposed to be encouraging them. In the Olympics, sure, only one person gets the gold medal. In the the Greek games, only one got the laurel wreath. But the scripture promises a crown to all of those who finish the race. We are not competing. We are encouraging all the more as we see the day approaching. I'm not trying to be better than you. I shouldn't be trying to be better than you. Brings us to, I told you, most of this is our First point, second point, the way we run the race, verses two and three. But these are are critically important verses. We are to run with a goal in view. Every coach will tell you, regardless of the sport, to stay focused. And the first rule to a race is to keep your eyes ahead. Don't be looking around the cheering crowds. Do not be looking around at the other competitors because you're not comparing yourself with them. Keep your eyes fixed on the goal. And the goal that we are supposed to keep our eyes fixed on is who? Jesus. Fix your eyes means to look away from everyone and everything that could distract and could deter and lock your eyes on him. This is interesting. We've given an entire chapter of examples of faith in chapter 11, but they are not the goal. I am not the goal. You are not the goal. Jesus is the goal. Glance at others, learn from them, be encouraged by them, but our goal is Jesus. Interesting way to say it. He doesn't say Christ. He doesn't even say Jesus Christ. He says Jesus. He's focusing on his humanity. You see, he too ran his race in the flesh. Lock your gaze on him. It is for him. I cannot say this more clearly. It is for him and to him we are running. And I am talking about a person. We've all heard it said this way. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. There is a sense in which that is true. Our relationship is with Jesus Christ. One of my commentators said it so. Jesus is not merely an example like some long dead hero, nor is he the object of our faith as a mere philosophical ideal. Rather, he is an active recipient of our faith, active and inspiring and empowering faith in us because he lives now. He is our living Lord, a person to whom we look, for whom and to whom we run. I cannot stress this point enough. Fix 
your eyes on Jesus. How many times I've heard people say, Christianity has disappointed me. And when I get to talking to them about it, they say something like this, well, Christians, they take Christianity and they reduce it to Christians. Well, Christians have disappointed me. Of course we have. We are not the, the object of your faith. You have not shortened it enough. You must short Christianity not to Christians, but to Christ. He will never let you down. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author of our faith, which means he's the originator, the founder, the leader. He secured our salvation in the atonement. It is his grace that saved us. It is his grace that sustains us in the race. Others will not sustain you. Only Jesus will sustain you. So lock onto him. He's the perfecter of our faith, which means he is the finisher, the consummator. He is the one who has brought faith to its proper end. He's the ultimate example of perseverance. Put that together and we see that Jesus is both originator and object of faith. He originates it. He sustains it. He is the example. He is the object. He is everything. Jesus is our greatest treasure. And if you start looking at other people, if you start looking at other things to find your fulfillment in life, you will be sorely disappointed. Look at me. Are you kidding me? Talk to my wife. Don't talk to my wife. I'm about out of time. I'm going to skip ahead, Deborah. For the joy, how did he do it? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The word despising is used in a negative way everywhere except here. Despising the shame. Joy set before him was the triumph of the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation. It was knowing that after he had redeemed his people, he would be seated at the right hand of his father. Seated at the right hand is in the perfect tense. That's critically important. It means that something happened in the past and it has ongoing effect. What's the ongoing effect? It means that Jesus sat down and is still there. So when you lock your eyes on Jesus, I want you to see him at the right hand of God, sitting on his throne, interceding for you. But he did have to endure the cross first, of which shame he despised. As you are well aware, the death of the cross was the most ignominious, shameful, disgraceful death that could be faced at this time. It was reserved for the lowest of the low, the common criminal, slaves. Roman citizens were not allowed to be put to death by crucifixion. They didn't even mention, so, mention it, so horrid it was. And yet, he faced it, despising its shame, successfully finishing the race set before him. And so finally, we are told to consider him. It's a, that's a mathematical term. It, it's the word from which we get our word algorithm. It means to calculate his cost. Listen. Calculate the cost of Jesus. Is he worth it? He is your greatest treasure. It's when you start looking at everything else, taking your eyes off Jesus, that you can become discouraged in this thing called the Christian life. But if you will calculate the cost of Jesus, if you will look at who he is and what he has done for you, you will come away and say, this is entirely worth it. My question is twofold, and I'm done. Are you in the race? Are you? You just showing up on Sunday mornings? Are, are, are you in the race? Do you even know Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever even fixed your eyes on him? He will never let you down. And if you have, my question is, how's the race going? Have you been distracted? Are there things in your life that need to go? Good things. 
Good things, maybe good things that everyone else pines for. Are there things in your life that need to go? Is there sin in your life that you think no one knows about? I've got news for you. Jesus knows. Is there sin in your life that needs to go? My brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus and let's together run the race well.